All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning for granting us the peace and the serenity to worship you through the learning of your precious word, for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrificial lamb, the one who took away the sins of the world. Father, we appreciate so very much all that you've done for us and continue to do for us through this ministry and through the spiritual gifts that you've ordained to make it the instrument of righteousness you meant it to be. We pray, Father, that our hearts be always open and humble, for humility is truly the key to the spiritual life, as we've learned from the Bible. We pray for those still sick, whether physically or spiritually. We pray that this message finds them healing. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 34. Obviously, the Spirit has a lot to say on this subject. And we're on Romans 1.16 and 1.17, which really speaks to the Gospel, Sanctification, uh, Salvation, and Sanctification. So... It makes sense that he has a lot to say and that we're on it now. And uh, It's been a wonderful journey uh, that we started back in, I want to say, in September. In any case, I hope that you all are still reading the blogs. The blogs are down to once per week. I was doing two a week, but now they're down to once per week so that I can focus on writing uh, books or booklets. and uh, That's an ongoing process. So, uh, With that said, though... Um, there's a lot of other folks uh, that get the blogs. Some of them are overseas. This particular gentleman, I believe, is in Kenya. He's a pastor uh, down in Kenya, and he gets the blog. And The latest one was called My Fitness Band, if you read it. And it was really about physical health uh, and the, um, the blessing of it and that God wants us to be physically healthy. So this was the response I got from this pastor after reading my fitness band. Amazing grace. Over 20 years ago, I suffered from poor health. I was sick with swelling of feet. I walked with the help of crutches. Of course, it was warning discipline from God. I longed to die, and I prayed for it. It was not God's will. The Holy Spirit helped to realize that I, helped me to realize that I was a sinner and needed help. Immediately, I told God to give me life. I believed in Jesus Christ and had peace. That sickness left after one year. That is how I came to meet with Jesus. So when you talk about good health, I understand what you mean. For a healthy person, a bed is a place of comfort and rest. For a sick person, a bed is a prison. 
Good health enables us to interact with the external world. Sickness secludes us from the world, and we need friends and relatives to feed us with what is happening outside. May we learn to appreciate this and then turn to the Creator and make Him our refuge. Have a blessed year, 2016. Pastor Joshua Makua from Kenya. So you should be encouraged by that, that this ministry reaches out in so many ways. Uh, we have a thriving um, children's um, blog, if you would, or newsletter that goes out once a month that is very popular, especially overseas. Especially, most of the followers of, of my blog are uh, stateside, but it's almost a flip. I'd say 90-something percent of the ones that have or get the children's newsletter are overseas. It's amazing. Um, and you, can, you could read a lot into that, honestly. But in any case, I hope you're uh, um, encouraged by those kinds of things. That is a tremendous testimony from a humble man of God, and I am grateful that he had shared it uh, with me, and then the Spirit had me share it with you. On that note, we began our New Year's Eve class on Thursday with this quote from Donald Gray Barnhouse, If you will turn to the God of force and power and nature and acknowledge fully your creature's subservience to Him, you will find Him immediately as the God of grace, coming to you to meet your every need. Our studies have taken us back to where we find the roots of this ministry. And when I say the roots of this ministry, it's where we began. About six years plus, I guess, so ago, with Romans 1. We started with Romans 1.1. 1, 1. And here we are back again on Romans 1. And there's sort of two parts, generally speaking. Romans 1, 1 to 17, the glory of salvation and spiritual life. And then the second half, verses 18 to 32, the tragedy of unbelief and spiritual death. And those are big picture items, the reason he's got it so sort of watered down there without any of the granularity, is because he's been trying to elevate our thinking, trying to elevate the way that we think about our spiritual lives, the way that God thinks about salvation and sanctification and the gospel, the way that they're really one reality to God. And that's what he's trying to get us to think like, rather than just categorically chunking things out and missing the big picture. As we read through the entirety of Romans 1, we noted that Paul was applying this principle relative to God's sovereignty. God's creatures are accountable to Him. That is a universal fact. Whether or not His creatures agree, confess, with Him or not. We read Psalm 1, James 4.12, and we compared those to 2 Samuel 24.12, which was David. Again, God's creatures are accountable to him. That is sort of, you know, numero uno, first step, or the first part of the good news. The good news is that we really do have a creator that we're accountable to. Now, some people who are adolescent 
might say, I don't want to be accountable to anyone. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I don't want to be accountable to anyone. I want to be accountable to me. But that's pure arrogance. Because if you've been at this for any point of time, if you realized and recognized that God is sovereign and that you are accountable to Him, that's a place of peace, as the pastor just said. That's a place of peace and rest, knowing that we're accountable to a perfect God. So the first part of the good news is that we are held accountable to a God of perfect integrity. I was thinking about it this way. And think about it. If you get dragged into court tomorrow, isn't your primary concern that you'll receive a fair trial? Isn't that your primary concern? Some are like, no, I just want to get off. No, you want a fair trial. That's what you're looking for. And where does that begin? It begins with integrity in the judge. The worst thing you could come across, and it happens, is a judge that's lacking integrity. So I would say that if you get dragged into court tomorrow, the first thing you're going to look for is a fair judge and a fair trial. Well, no one has more integrity than God. And He is our judge. Thankfully. It's a very good thing to have Him as judge. And that's what He's saying. See, the arrogant person doesn't like that. The arrogance, and this is one of the books I'm writing, arrogance hates to be judged by anyone. That's one of the reasons you see all the fruit you see out of arrogant people. At the end of the day, it all goes back to they don't want to be judged. So no one has more integrity than God, and He is our judge, thankfully. This is why we must meditate on His justice and righteousness and be grateful. Let me give you the Amplified in Psalm 1 up here on the board. Blessed, fortunate, prosperous, and favored by God is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, following their advice and example, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit down to rest in the seat of scoffers, ridiculers. Verse 2 in the Amplified. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, his precepts and his teachings, he habitually meditates day and night. Verse 3, And he will be like a tree firmly planted and fed by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers and comes to maturity. Verse 4, The wicked, those who live in disobedience, how much emphasis have we been getting lately on obedience? The wicked, those who live in disobedience to God's law, are not so, but they are like the chaff, worthless and without substance, which the wind blows away. Psalm 1.5 in the Amplified, Therefore the wicked will not stand unpunished in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And then finally, verse 6, For the Lord knows and fully approves the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Again, the first part of the good news really is 
that God's creatures are accountable to him. That's a very good thing to know because you want to be accountable to the creator, not to creatures. And that's one of the things of folly we note in Romans 1, the second half, that they worship the creature rather than the creator. And there's a certain subservience and a servanthood that goes along with idolatry. So it's really good news that we realize that we are accountable to a God of perfect integrity. And that's sort of step one. This is a universal fact, whether or not our creatures or his creatures agree or confess with him or not. James 4.12 in the Amplified up here. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, the one God who has the absolute power of life and death, But who are you to hypocritically or self-righteously pass judgment on your neighbor? Of course, David understood, King David understood God's perfect integrity so well that he made this statement. 2 Samuel 24, 14 in the message, David told Gad, They're all terrible, but I'd rather be punished by God, whose mercy is great, then fall into human hands. Humans are awful. We're not very good judges at all. Why? Because we suffer from subjectivity. God doesn't suffer from subjectivity. Perfect integrity implies perfect objectivity. And that's what you want. You want a, quote, fair trial. And we are guaranteed perfect, fair judgment from our perfect God. But arrogance doesn't want that. Arrogance doesn't want to be judged. Arrogance wants to do things and receive things in favor of self. Whatever it takes. Those are the same people that try to, you know, skirt the law, find the loopholes, hire the sleazy lawyers to get off of some judgment, when in all reality, God never is fooled. That's what arrogance does. And they sometimes often bring that even to God in arrogance, expecting him to somehow bend or, you know, they bat their eyelashes or play games with God, expecting him to bend because he likes them more than the next person. It's all silliness. It's all ridiculousness. Again, the point on the board, God's sovereignty, God's creatures are accountable to him. That is a universal fact, whether or not anyone believes it or not. It's not the issue. Because of the cross, you have been judged righteous. Therefore, we might add this perspective up here on the board. Because, you know, too many people in their adolescence think that the word judge means it's always bad. It's actually a really good thing to be judged by God. That's what he's been teaching us. It's not a bad thing to be judged by God. Even if he says, I have to dole out a little uh, discipline. That still, in of itself, is a grace gift from God because he's trying to right the ship. So judgment is never bad when it comes to God. It's suspect when it comes to his creatures, though. So here's some added perspective for the sake of encouragement. You have been purchased with a price. Your life is your Redeemer's. We're all slaves, folks, as Paul says in Romans 6. 
And if you're saved, you are Christ's slave. We looked at 1 Peter 1, 17 and 19 last time. Let's look at, go to 1 Corinthians 6, 19. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You have been purchased with a price. Your life is your Redeemer's. See, the arrogant person says, this is my life. I'm a self-made man. Well, some people teach their children, you know, mommy created you. No, she didn't. Mommy made you. No, she didn't. That's not true. God, would have, God gives life, not mothers, not fathers. And God saves. Not mothers, not fathers. So if you're saved, you are Christ's slave. 1 Corinthians 6.19 or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So the next time you say, I'm my own man, be careful what you're really trying to convince yourself or others of. Because the Bible says you're not your own. You've been redeemed. And the cost was greater than anything you could have given. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That reminds me of the blog. Therefore glorify God in your body. You have been bought with a price. Then you are not your own. That's a fundamental perspective that we all need to remain in always. That it's not even our life specifically. It's His life. He purchased it. And you are always a slave. Therefore, up here on the board, as slaves go... We're always accountable to the Master. Therefore, we are accountable to God in every way, beginning with our allegiance and including baseline things like morality. We are accountable to God in every way. What gives Him the right, the arrogant might ask? Up here on the board. Not only does the Lord claim sovereignty, it is His right to claim it given who He is. I mean, He's the Creator. The clay doesn't say to the potter, what are you doing? I mean, they can. But once again, it's folly. Not only does the Lord claim sovereignty, it is His right to claim it, given who He is. For example, our Creator. Therefore, in short, what the Spirit's saying here is... If your life is His life, then it's His life to sanctify, not yours. And that's where it gets slippery, even for Christians. If your life is His life, which it is, we just saw that, then it's His life to sanctify, not yours. So you don't really have the right to usurp His sovereign rulership by hijacking your spiritual life. You say, oh, thanks for salvation, I'm going to take it from here. Go deal with someone else. You don't have that right. You don't even have the ability as much as you might try. But living the spiritual life begins with perspective, the key being humility. So in humility, you have to accept the fact that this is not even your life. You've been purchased. And that he's trying to bring glory to himself through you as a vessel of mercy. Respect that. Fear Him. So if your life is His life, then it's His life to sanctify, not yours. And that's the movement from 
the gospel and salvation into sanctification. And uh, like Paul says in uh, Galatians 3.3, 3, you begin by the Spirit, you're going to perfect yourself by the flesh now? That was a mistake that even the ancient people did. Go to Romans 1.16. We'll pick up where we left off last time and we'll amplify a few more principles. But isn't, isn't mankind so famous for such things? Thank you, Lord. I'll take it from you. Because I'm not sure I want to do this Christian thing. I don't know if I like it. I really like I'm grateful. Thank you for saving me. But I kind of was comfortable in my old little life over here, and I got some street credit. You know, I got a nice little thing going over here. And if I do this whole Christian thing now, it's going to disrupt my little life, my plans. You know, I got a five-year plan. Would you like to see it, God? It's written right here. I even used a best-selling book to help me frame it out. That's man. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. That's that Greek word dunamis, where we get the English word dynamite, even. Power from dunamis means ability to perform for the believer. Power to achieve by applying the Lord's inherent abilities is needed in every scene of life to really grow in sanctification and prepare even for heaven, which is glorification. It's used 120 times in the New Testament. It's where we get the English word dynamite. We noted some connective tissue since we spent all that time with 2 Timothy uh, 3, 6, and 7 up here on the board. That same Greek root word dunamai here, Always learning and never able. This was the situation of the weak woman, the basket case, so to speak, the one weighed down with sin. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, that's what happens when you walk away from the power source, that is God. When you choose to live in dysfunction junction, when you choose to continue to live in sin, Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I hope you see the point here, up here on the board. Sanctification, this is our primary course, our heading, if you would, right now in our studies. So all of this is to amplify sanctification. Sanctification depends wholly upon the dynamic, dunamai, the dynamic power of the Lord God to deliver us. Any viewpoint or attempt to refute this is folly. In other words, if you think you can sanctify yourself, that is absolute folly. Just to put things in lay perspective up here on the board, self-sanctification is folly. It is much more stupid. I guess that, by the way, Robin, either one's acceptable. Stupider or more stupid. Because she was calling me, texting me. Like, give me funny looks after class. You're much stupider than me. <laughs> so I, got, I was in the grammar books. Is this true? Am I stupider than Robin? This may be true, but this is all right. This is acceptable, more stupid. Sounds better, too, doesn't it? 
It is much more stupid for man to propose he win a battle of wills with God than a cockroach proposing he can win an arm wrestling contest with a man. It really is. I mean, look, God's sanctifying power is omnipotent, all-powerful. Again, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, that's that dunamis, of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now this is where we stopped our forward progress and stepped back, way back, to see the big picture. And make no mistake, uh, look at Romans 1.17. Do some of you have uh, all caps? Right? That means it's an Old Testament quote. Right? Think about that. That means there's nothing new under the sun. The righteous man shall live by faith. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. The righteous man has always lived by faith. And so there's a way that Paul actually synergizes the two Testaments, old and new. Now, this is where we stopped our forward progress again and stepped back, way back, to see the big picture here. And when we step back and contemplate Romans 1.17, we must think this way. Big picture, always this way. If you get up to the big picture, and this, is, this next slide is missing, something went awry in your own soul, and you need to get back to it. Victory in Jesus. That's the biggest big picture. That the race is already won. It's over. It's done with. We won. We're on the winning team. Guaranteed. God doesn't make mistakes. You know, Jesus is going to throw a pitch and he box and the game's over and we lose the series. No, we won. Guaranteed. So we have victory in Jesus. We run the race freely then. And you can think of sporting analogies or however you'd like to think about it. We run the race freely knowing that victory is ours. If we lose sight of our victory in Jesus, we cramp up, suffer personal injury. doesn't mean we're not going to go to heaven, but there's suffering, certain kinds of suffering that is self-imposed in a sense because we've chosen one path over the next. We've been tempted out of heading towards sanctification, however you'd like to think about it. But when we do, when we make those decisions, when we sin, we cramp up. We lose our freedom. We suffer personal injury, missing out on living the gospel reality. Again, we should not ever lose this simple statement, victory in Jesus. We run the race freely knowing that victory is ours. Let's read a tremendously edifying passage together. Go to 1 John 5.1. 1 John 5, 1. I'm just going to read it with you because it does... John was just really closing up shop in the letter and it's a wonderful summary of what the Spirit's really been amplifying from this pulpit, specifically the point on the board. So let's just read it. I'm not going to say a whole lot. Uh, I'm going to read it with you and we'll see what the Spirit has to say in your soul. 
1 John 5.1, and open yourself up to the big picture. He's trying to encourage you. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him. And that's, again, what the Spirit's saying. Victory in Jesus. You should be very confident that you've already won. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin and not uh, sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, and that's that perpetual, ongoing, doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. That's a habit. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and that is given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And I, I love this. What's the very last thing he says? Little children, guard yourselves from idols. It almost seems disjoint, but it's not. If you read the Bible, you know that that is not disjoint at all. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I wrote on Facebook recently, I think it was the last thing I wrote, one of the best questions you can ask yourself is, what am I celebrating? What am I celebrating? Because if it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, if it's all about me, or my life, or my accomplishments, or my kids' accomplishments, 
or my spouse's accomplishments or my uncle's accomplishments or this accomplishment or that thing or whatever. What are you celebrating? And if Jesus Christ isn't somewhere being glorified in that celebration, you have an idol. And it's amazing the types of things that people will go on and on and on and on and on and celebrate. Oh, this is the greatest thing. Look at my baby. Love babies. Gifts from gods, right? But they're not idols. They're not idols. They're not meant to be idols. Whole families are not supposed to drop Jesus for an idol, for a baby. We're supposed to remember, well, who gave that little baby life? This kind of a thing. Mother's famous for it. Or whatever, whatever the accomplishment is, you know. Got to make CEO by the time I'm 35 or else I failed my five-year plan. God, did you see this? Because I got to make this. Because I really want to celebrate me. This is about me. God, thanks for saving me, but it's about me. I'm going to self-sanctify. So really, a get-down-to-the-brass-tacks type thing, ask yourself, the next time you're celebrating, or the things that you consistently celebrate, what are you celebrating? And literally, if Jesus Christ is like 50 miles away, you probably have an idol. So it's just a poignant little question. And it's not disjoint at all from the heart of Jesus, or as we just saw with the Apostle John in John, 1 John 5.21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Why? It's the first thing that takes us to self-sanctification. We get our eyes off of Christ, and then all hell breaks loose. Amen? Amen. That's exactly how it goes. And Satan specializes in idolatry, specializes in religion, specializes in self-sanctification. So that's the point on the board. You know, nothing, I mean, think about it. What do we celebrate? Seriously, if we're going to celebrate anything, shouldn't we just celebrate Jesus and be done with it? Go about our business, but at the end of the day, shouldn't we just be celebrating being alive in Christ Jesus? Isn't that a celebration enough? I don't know. Maybe I'm boring. Maybe I'm a weird fanatic probably all the above, and much, much more. But I think I'm on to something. And I think Paul was, and John, and that Jesus guy. Maybe he was on to something. We run the race freely, knowing that victory is ours. If we lose sight of our victory in Jesus, we cramp up, suffer personal injury, missing out on living the gospel reality. So then you have to ask yourself, and I ask myself this all the time, why doesn't every believer live this way then? I mean, who doesn't want to be free? Who doesn't want to swing freely as they're walking the course of life? Who doesn't want that? Everybody wants that. Last time I checked. Then why doesn't every believer live this way? If it's that simple. God promises to sanctify us. We know this. He's given us the heart for truth, the faculty the good conscience. He, Jesus Christ says, I'm going to leave you the helper to help out that good conscience so you can make decisions. So then why doesn't every believer live the gospel reality? Why isn't every believer shouting from the rooftops like the Apostle John? 
in 1 John 5. Well, that's where our enemies come in. That's where our enemies come in. Satan, the world, the flesh. Up here on the board. We know that the righteous live by faith. That's in Romans 1.17. Faith in God's promises are only undermined by the temptation to doubt them, which is Satan's desire to sow doubt. The fact remains that you are already crowned, a crowned victor in Christ. So again, why doesn't, why doesn't every believer just swing freely? Why isn't everyone just, hey, I'm living the gospel reality. Why does everybody not in that same zone that the apostles were in? Why does everybody seem so weighed down or anxious? I'm talking about believers. Why are believers not just spilling over, you know, parasuo? Why not believers just not spilling over with love? What's going on? Well, the enemies certainly are no help. Because the enemies specialize in undermining and sowing doubt. And that is Satan's desire. Satan's desire, now listen up. Satan's desire is to shepherd you away from living in the freedom that Christ set you free to live in. To set up a counterfeit spiritual life after salvation. To propagate a system of self sanctification. I dedicate that to all the people who should be here this morning that aren't. They're off self-sanctifying themselves. I don't need what God says I need. I don't need a church. I don't need to gather together. I don't need to this. I don't need to that. I'm not talking about people with legitimate excuses. I'm talking about people that ought to be here or ought to be in some church that's teaching truth right now. They have another shepherd. And it's from the world. And it's Satan himself who's trying to shepherd them away from truth. Towards a system of self-sanctification. It's amazing how disobedient his children are. I can sit here literally, completely filled with the Spirit, and scream Scripture at people. And they still will refuse it. That's not for me. Doesn't, doesn't apply to me. Really? How does that work? How does that not apply to you? Do not think he's not, Satan's not genius enough to set up an entire counterfeit spiritual life. Don't think that he's not smart enough to make himself a shepherd. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.13. Don't believe me? Go to 2 Corinthians 11.13. Just think I'm being wildly fanatical since it's the New Year's? Well, let's just see what Scripture has to say then about this. <clears throat> I can, all I can say is, you know, and you should listen to me. Imitate my faith. You should listen to me. I'm here for a reason. I know the heart of a shepherd. You know why? Because I am one. In the stuff that I see people doing, 
is not, it has to be being shepherded by someone other than someone godly. There's no way that this heart could lead people to do the things that I see, even in my own congregation. There's no way. You know how I know? Because I have a shepherd's heart. And if you doubt that, then you shouldn't be here anyways. 2 Corinthians 11.13 For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Not a novel concept at all. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What do you think that means, my friends? Do you think he has any problem coming into someone's life and proposing that he too is a shepherd? That this person who he is motivating for God knows what sordid gain, God knows what? ungodly thing these people are motivated by? Do you think, he's, it's a, you think it's a far stretch to assume that Satan's not motivating pulpits right now, at this hour, throughout this country? Do you think he's not motivating false teachers right now in the name of Christ? Do you think he has scruples? Do you think he has honor? No way. But as we learned in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, or 3, 6, and 7, that the weak women are responsible for being in that situation. The weak women, men and women, are responsible for listening to those idiots. They want their ears tickled by a false teacher that teaches self-sanctification and religion. And it suits them just right. And they all lie together. They all lie together about some spirit, but it's another spirit teaching another gospel. And we shouldn't bear it beautifully, as Paul said to the Corinthians. We shouldn't bear such things beautifully. We should understand that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's why you always have to be very careful when anybody that stands behind a pulpit says, this is going to blow your socks off. I, I, Edward Collins, discovered something no one has ever seen before in the Bible. Let me walk you through this new doctrine. Be very careful of that. Be very, very careful of that kind of garbage. It's usually just Satan disguising himself as an angel of light. It's not the new under the sun. So do not think. The reason I'm getting all fired up is because I hate these people. Not the people, but I hate what they stand for. I hate that Satan waltzes people away, even though, you know, they're these helpless little emotional women and men. It's still gross. The whole thing is grotesque, you see? But what the Spirit's really emphasizing is that there are counterfeit shepherds. No wonder. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Look at verse 15. Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Of course, God's going to have the last say on it. But every single person in this world has a free will. And if they're truly interested in truth, 
The Bible says, seek me and you'll find me. Knock and the door will be open. The problem is most people aren't really seeking him. They're just seeking for some religion that tells them that their life is okay, that they can go on living themselves for themselves and self-sanctifying themselves. Some of these people aren't even interested in the gospel. You can't even get beyond the gospel proper. Some of them are saved and then say, I don't really want to do this thing. I'm dragging my feet over here. My flesh is out of control. And everything in between. Satan has counterfeit shepherds planted throughout the world. And they do his bidding within the perceived sanctity of so-called Christianity from behind pulpits even, a la 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7. King David knew his shepherd well, and he wrote, go to Psalm 23, 1. Psalm 23, 1. King David knew his shepherd well. He knew who his shepherd was. He confessed, not always right away as we've learned in the Bible, But he knew in his heart of hearts, he confessed when he wasn't following his shepherd. King David knew his shepherd well. Psalm 23, 1. Who's his shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, look at verse 3. Who's it for, who sanctified? For whose sake? For his name's sake. That's what it means. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's David, a man after God's own heart, the humble one. I like to think about him. Up here on the board again, the righteous live by faith. Faith in God's promises are only undermined by the temptation to doubt them. Do you hear any doubt in David's writing? I don't think so. The Lord is my shepherd, he said. Such is Satan's desire to sow doubt. The fact remains that you are already a crowned victor in Christ. The Spirit's exhorting all of us not to lose sight of the gospel. So we ask this question up here on the board. Where is the explosive power to live by faith found? In the gospel, the good news. And it's not just what happened judicially, justification by faith. That is absolutely something that occurs, must occur, has to occur, does occur at salvation. But there's much more to the good news, to the gospel, than just the forensics of your salvation. And you ought to live in the explosive power of all of it. That's what he's saying. Sanctification, then, is much more about living in a reality than merely doing things. One precedes the other. Said differently, the gospel is so full of power that it energizes the humble believer's life in every way. So we can rightly conclude and live by this. Sanctification is a fundamental facet of the gospel. We don't just live in the past simply pointing to our positional sanctification. We live in the now, obeying 
such that He can sanctify us experientially. Sanctification is a fundamental facet of the gospel. We don't just live in the past simply pointing to our positional sanctification. We live in the now, obeying such that He can sanctify us experientially. We did all that work when we discovered the fullness of the gospel together, that even a heart of obedience is given to a believer. And so what did the Spirit say? If you don't have it, you might have a problem. In other words, if the gospel, just to revisit very briefly, if the gospel to you, and I'm not saying it's any of you, but if the gospel to you is simply a trip to heaven, you might have missed the point. If you're just hedging a bet, you might have missed the point. Mom and dad are happy. Yes, mom. Yes, I believe in Jesus. All right, I'm going to heaven. Now, can I go about my business now? That's not the heart of Christ, the same one that's given to a believer. As Scripture says, as we discovered in great, great detail, the first 20 hours of this series. So obedience is certainly part of the fullness of the gospel. Go to Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. Doesn't mean you always obey. It means you have a heart for it. There's a direction that has been set in your soul. It's called the new creature. The only thing that thing can do is good things. The flesh, on the other hand, one of our three enemies, tempts us away from it. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Up here on the board, what does that mean, to work out your salvation? Paul is speaking to believers, first of all. So he's talking about salvation here is what I've taught in the past. That salvation is an entire life. God saves you every day. He delivers you every day. So what does that mean? Paul is speaking to believers. It refers to your deliverance, your sanctification. Obedience is amplified here. The Holy Spirit's ministry implied, of course. Again, Paul is speaking to believers, so we're not talking about the positional phase. We're talking about sanctification. Refers to your deliverance, your sanctification. Obedience is being implied here. And of course, the Holy Spirit's ministry is implied as well, because who convicts you to obey? Who fills you? The Spirit does. That's what it means to work out your salvation. This passage speaks very clearly to sanctification being an ongoing reality. Our previous lessons in this series have guaranteed that all phases of sanctification are a single reality to those rightly related to God. Sure, we can phase it out, you know, positional, experiential, ultimate, however you'd like to look at it. Everybody's language is different anyways. But all the phases of sanctification are really a single reality. God says He's going to sanctify you, He'll sanctify you. 
I didn't say that. That's the word of God. And if somehow, as we learned along the way, if somehow a person can somehow completely divorce themselves from the faith, they were probably apostate, which means they probably weren't saved in the first place. Because all believers were given an obedient heart, a heart for Christ. Knowing this, Satan's strategy is to distract us up here on the board, sowing doubt. If you've lost sight of the gospel, you've lost sight of the victory. Satan's strategy is to distract all humans from the gospel, captivating them, Allah, 2 Timothy 3.6, instilling a bondage in them that shouldn't exist. So beware of religion, folks. Religion, a.k.a. self-sanctification, you know, salvation or sanctification by works, that's what religion is. Religion's quest, then Satan promotes religion in his world in order to frustrate God's plan for his children, which is to bring glory to himself by sanctifying them. What did John say in the end of 1 John 5? Children, beware of idols. Satan promotes religion in his world in order to frustrate God's plan for his children, which is to bring glory to himself by sanctifying them. Religion ultimately perverts the doctrine of sanctification into some form, and you can pick and choose, I mean, different denominations and religions and what have you. They have their own little versions and their own sort of strains of salvation by works. Salvation by works, which is the antithesis of grace. Some of them propose a gospel that says the cross wasn't enough. Some of them propose a gospel that was incomplete so that you can actually do some kind of a sin, like murder or something, that's a different category that can take you back to hell after you've already been saved. Well, I guess the cross was what? Only partially sufficient? What are they suggesting there? Other religions say, well, you're saved now, but, you know, since sanctification isn't a guarantee, you can go live the rest of your life without any heart at all for Jesus Christ and still expect fully to go to heaven. No, that would be an apostate. That's a person who never actually believed in the real gospel in the first place. And guess what Satan's doing? Yay, that's perfect. This is great. Satan's saying, he's like, not only do I have them turned off from God, these people, as a counterfeit shepherd, I've given them a false gospel. They think they're going to heaven, and they're not. Sheesh. Galatians 3.3 in the Amplified. Are you so foolish and senseless? Having begun your new life by faith with the Spirit, are you now being perfected and reaching spiritual maturity by the flesh? That is, by your own works and efforts to keep the law? All the Spirit's saying is, listen, God has sanctification under control. The method is through faith by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It started salvation, and that's exactly how it continues throughout life. We cannot self-sanctify. That's religion. If you lose sight of the gospel, the fullness of it, then you have nowhere left to go but back to self-sanctification, which is religion. And that's what Paul was guarding against. Remember this, 
Only God can sanctify men. If you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form of self-sanctification eventually. Let's go back now. Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16. We did some work on righteousness that we need to complete. Put to bed. I hope you're keeping the big picture in mind. I know there's a lot of moving parts. I've talked to multiple people about the lessons as of late. Yes, there is a lot of information. Yes, there is. But I give it to you three times a week, which means there's four other days you could go back and re-listen to a lesson. Oh, I could do that? Yeah, you can do that. But I don't want to. I'm too busy. I know. That's the problem. You don't really want all the truth. You want the truth when it accommodates your little schedule or your little tradition or your little religion. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, and as we discussed, a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And I just gave you something to think about. A more literal translation can help. A righteousness from God is being revealed, refers to a judicial forensic reality where God imputes a righteousness to a believer. It's not his righteousness, folks. It's a righteousness. It's what makes you right in his eyes. The judgment is, was nailed on a cross, let's put it that way. But you, my friends, are not righteous right now. You've been made righteous judicially. Anybody sinned today? I'm sure I have. That right there makes me what? Not God. And that's what he's saying. A righteousness was judicially or forensically given to you, imputed. That's a judicial term, impute to your account. The gavel comes down. You are judged against the merit of Christ and the cross. Therefore, you are judicially righteous. That's what imputed righteousness means. It doesn't mean we are God's righteousness. It doesn't mean we're God. First, to a judicial forensic reality where God imputes a righteousness to a believer, Philippians 3.9, we looked at, does not refer to God's righteousness specifically. Pressing on, verse 17 again, for in it... A righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We took the next step and we look at is revealed. And this is where I think, you know, it becomes a little bit more mind-blowing. It becomes more amazing, more incredible, frankly, in my heart. Is revealed refers to the unveiling of the fruit of the righteousness imputed to believers from God at salvation. God sanctifies from faith to faith, for it is by faith that a man shall live as a Christian. And really, what the Spirit's saying is, (laughs) we don't do anything. All of this, the revelation even, of this righteousness that's given to us, the one that's evidenced from faith to faith, it's all by grace. And that's the righteous man lives by faith. It's through faith that we've received grace. It's through faith that we're sanctified, because that's what grace does. It sanctifies us. 
Hopefully you see the way he pours out grace, perisuo. He pours out grace, his love, which motivated by his love, onto our laps. That's what it means from faith to faith. So we live in this whole reality. He wants not just to give us the doctrines. He wants to give us life. What do you think eternal life's going to be? You okay, Scott? What do you think eternal life is actually? Think about heaven. Think about living in that reality. Is he going to be, listen, we're going to have pop quizzes in heaven on the doctrine of sanctification? We're going to have pop quizzes on the three phases of sanctification. We're going to have pop quizzes on the original Greek words or Hebrew words? No. He's going to say, you're living in eternal life, my friends. And you can thank my son for that. Therefore, any crowns or rewards we have, we're going to do what the 24 did and cast them at the feet of the one that's worthy of them. Amen? Amen. So why are we not living that way? I want my crown. I keep it. It's mine like a little kid. It's mine. Your little kid's mine. I'm not ready to cast it at Jesus' feet yet because when I wear this crown and I walk around outside, everybody's like, oh. Right? You are what you are by the grace of God. Anything even worthy of any praise, the first thing you should do is say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for making me who I am. That's what it means to live the gospel reality. Not, thank you for the blessings, I'm going to go take them, I'm going to wear them out in the world so I can be self-sanctified in the eyes of the world so I can be something special. Some people, do you realize some people even come to church for that? I'm going to go to church, I'm going to learn a little bit so I can go back to my disgusting family and tell them and show them how smart I am. Where I was the kid who was picked on at school. No more! I'm going to be the smart one, I'm going to be this person, I'm going to be superior in this way, I'm going to be superior in speech, I'm going to have all the doctrines, I'm going to blah, 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 blah. What's wrong with you? You really think that's what he's sanctifying you for so you can go back to your problems from high school that's what he's sanctifying you for so you can have what some kind of retribution on the world that picked on you you think that's what christianity is all about it is for some it certainly is for some that's why they pray out in the open so everybody can see they wear their little cross medallion so everybody can see i'm a christian you're not that's not the heart of christ at all at all are you kidding me? That's not revealing the righteousness of God. That's revealing the unrighteousness of Satan. Satan had that little problem called pride. That's not a righteous man living by faith. That's a righteous man, or an unrighteous man, self-sanctifying by living in some other faith, which typically ties all the way back to Another gospel from another spirit. So I know there's a lot of bits and pieces uh, in these lessons, but focus on it. And if, if, if these things seem to be, you know, a little bit over your head, or go back, listen, take the three lessons. You know, go in your little, go in your little day planner, and go three hours. Blocked off. I'm going to listen to the last three lessons in a row. 
you get to look at this mug for three hours in a row. Right, Robin? Stupider. Right? Not about me. You shouldn't even see me. I've told you this a million times. When, I've, when was the last time I left? I listen to my own lessons once in a while. And when I'm listening to my own lessons, it's not even me up there anymore. I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, yeah, amen, yeah. I'm like, man, that guy's handsome. <laughs> I don't say that. That's when I'm watching somebody else. <laughs> it's not about this person. It's not about anything about, but you understanding these core principles so that you are set apart, so that you can live freely. That's what it means. That's, that's the revelation, folks, of his righteousness. That's what a righteous man does. They live by faith. When you live by faith, faith being the channel, grace right through to your account. It happened at, sanct- it happened at salvation. It happens in time. But you have to be what? Open, humble. You ready for the O word now? Obedient. Hmm. But here's the truth. Only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. You want to have a spiritual life? You want to bring glory to God? You have to be humble. You have to learn what it means to receive grace. You have to stick with it. You have to be obedient. Only through faith can righteousness be imputed by grace. Yeah, I think I'm going to stop there. Anyone want to take a guess where I stopped? This is amazing. The last three verses. Scott, do you remember? Romans 4. It's hilarious. The last three lessons. I don't know why, but that's the crescendo and enough. I'm looking at you guys, and you guys are like, everybody's got their mouths closed and holding their noses so it doesn't come out. It's like that. Enough! Enough! (laughs) Well, it is uh, communion service this morning. I'm going to bring up Evangelist Scott Grande, and he's going to close up shop. I'm just going to close up my computer here. Uh, Gentlemen, get some music. uh, Pass out the elements, please. I'll change mics.
right, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Pastor Collins, for the privilege today. Appreciate it. Uh, this is obviously a very uh, sacred time for us and um, a great honor to always do. And I want to talk today for a few minutes about the book of Galatians, which the Lord had me read yesterday, um, not by my own plans. And um, it's not a very long book, but when read as a whole in context, you see a very loving and rebuking letter. So if you want to turn there, you can. Be careful for your cups. But if you want to follow along with a few verses I'm going to scan through in Galatians, feel free to uh, open that up. But I'm going to read it in the NIV so you'll get a little different flavor. So the picture is that Paul was quite distraught, actually. Talk about a shepherd's heart. Uh, he, you know, is a great visual aid of the heart of our Lord. And he was distraught and saddened that the people had become weak women in some way, submitting to a deceiver in their midst. I want to read a few verses in Galatians to get a view of Paul's concerns and his reminder of the reason that Christ came and died for us. So if we were to call this little message right now something, it would be called, It Was for Freedom. So look at Galatians 1.6 first. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Then in Galatians 2.20, Paul reminds them of the truth. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And then in Galatians 3.1, he shakes them again. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And look at verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And look at Galatians 4, verse 8.
He reminds them, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And then Galatians 5.1. He reminds them of the reason that Christ came. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In verse 7, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. In verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And in Galatians 6, 9, he reminds us how to live in love, the love that Christ died for to set us free. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. So Christ died so that we could live our lives in the gospel reality as we've been learning, that we could live each day on earth in light of the victory he has given us over sin and death. And if we're doing anything besides that, we're listening to a false gospel in some way or a false shepherd somewhere. Again, Christ died so that we could live our lives in the gospel reality, that we could live each day on earth in light of the victory he has given us over sin and death. It was for freedom. As we celebrate today, let's apply that to our lives. It was for freedom that he suffered and died. Let's not insult the Lord by turning to self-sanctification, because only he, the giver of life, can sanctify those that are his. In 1 Corinthians 11.23, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In memory of our Lord, let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In memory of our Lord. I'm going to close with a video here before we pray.
close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this wonderful time together as your children to gather together, learn more about you, your son, your love, and your shepherding heart. We ask, Father, that if anyone is listening right now who has never accepted your son as their God and Savior, we ask that you give them the faith right now to believe. The Bible says we are all sinners. We are all guilty before a holy, righteous God. But we need to repent, turn to Him. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. It's between you and Him. Father, if anyone has made that decision today for the first time in their hearts, we want to welcome them to your royal family. We ask that you bless us as we continue on in your word one day at a time and give us traveling mercies as well. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.